You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 15, verse 18 through 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that it is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for this word, this word that you have given us from the Lord Jesus to prepare us. And so now, Father, we pray that you would have your own way with us, that you would mold us and make us further into the image of Christ, to love what he loves, to delight in what he delights, to respond as he responds. Father, we pray even for those who are with us this evening who might not yet know the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would do a great work in their life. Show him clearly to them, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, there's several here tonight that I haven't met, so I'd love to shake your hand and get to know you a bit after the service this evening. If you have your Bibles and you haven't opened there already, go ahead and open to John's Gospel. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one that's right in front of you. The translation, the English translation, there's a bit different than the one that we use, so our word or two might be a little bit different, uh, but you can follow along there. And on your way out, if you don't have a Bible, we've got several black hardback covers right here on this table. We'd love for you to have one to be able to hear from God this week in his word. Well, late last week, I finally got to a movie that I've been wanting to watch since it came out in 2016. I, I can't believe it wasn't at least nominated, much less didn't win more Academy Awards than it, it did. It was only nominated for cinematography last year, but I can't believe it didn't because I'm quite confident it's the best movie I've seen in at least the last five or six years. The movie's called Silence, and it's Martin Scorsese's adaptation of the 1966 novel of the same title. And the movie's about Jesuit Portuguese missionaries to Japan in the 1640s. A bit niche. Uh, and I, I feel like I've already talked about this movie with like half of you in this room because it's like all I've thought about for the last two weeks. Uh, the story is about the political opposition and the persecution of Christians uh, in the mid-1600s because it, it had appeared that Japan was going to just convert to Christianity. 
in the early part of that century. Then the shogun elite decided that enough was enough. It's an extremely heavy movie, rated R for the psychological and physical violence enacted against the Christians of those days. So caveat before you go and watch it. Uh, It's also made by the progressive Catholic Scorsese, so watching the movie takes a bit of spiritual discernment. But it's wrestling with questions, real, real heavy and deep questions. Like, is the Christian gospel universally true in any time and in any place? Or are there places in the world where the gospel just is unable to speak, is unable to change and bring life, to save? Questions like, what does it mean to suffer for Christ? Questions like, is there ever too much suffering? How much suffering is too much suffering? Is there ever an appropriate time for Christians to externally recant their profession in Christ in order to save others from further suffering and persecution? And then, perhaps the question of the movie is, where is God in all of this? Does God hear the prayers? Does he hear the cries? Does he hear the screams of his people as they suffer? Or is he silent? It's a heavy movie. I think this movie is such a good conversation starter that we might just do a first movie night together uh, sometime this summer. Get together and watch this movie and talk about it after. But while the Japanese persecution of Christians in the 1640s was particularly horrible, it's certainly not the first time it's ever happened, nor would it be the last. So what do we make of all this? I mean, the last two chapters, we've been going through John's gospel together, and the last two chapters of Jesus's farewell speech to his disciples, he's told them at the beginning of chapter four that he's leaving, he's going to prepare a place for them, an awesome place, this heavenly place for them to dwell forever with the Father. But it's not a huge deal that he's leaving them because of one, where he's going, but that also he's leaving them with the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Spirit to indwell them, to strengthen them, to comfort them, to encourage his people. It's God's presence, Jesus' presence amongst them and with them forever. And when that happens, when his people abide in the Spirit, when they abide in his word, then he will abide in them. And he will produce major fruitfulness in their life, change in their life. Not the least of which that they will be filled with his very peace from chapter 14 and then be filled with his joy in chapter 15. I mean, like things are really shaping up, aren't they? If you're his disciples, you're thinking, this is awesome. Sign me up. I'm in. The life that you're describing both here and into eternity sounds wonderful. I'm in. And then Jesus transitions from how we, his people, ought to love one another and why that's so important. It's so important for Jesus' disciples to love one another because of the rest of the world. The rest of the world will actually not love his disciples. Jesus isn't some snake oil salesman selling his disciples on some awesomely perfect life. That if they would just follow him, then nothing will ever go wrong for them again. In fact, he's telling them, becoming his disciples will not only not mean that nothing will ever go wrong for them again, but that perhaps plenty more will actually go wrong in their lives because of their following him. In some of the other gospel accounts, we see Jesus talking about this in terms of counting the cost before getting into something. He wants them to think through, 
will this actually be worth it for you? And of course the answer to that is yes. Following Jesus is always worth it. But you may be tempted to not believe that if something that you weren't expecting comes as a result of following Jesus. You didn't quite realize what you were signing up for. So we'll see Jesus answer his disciples. He'll, we'll see him answer our own questions and misexpectations. We'll see even Jesus answer Martin Scorsese under two headings tonight in our text. That the world hates you, the disciples. The world hates you because it hates me, Jesus says. And then the world hates me because it hates God. It hates you because it hates me, and it hates me because it hates God. Jesus is going to frame most of this conversation, the, most of the first like two-thirds of it, as hypothetical. There's a lot of ifs that you heard Julia read. There's a lot of ifs until we get to the beginning of chapter 16, where he says this will happen. But this conversation is not a hypothetical if. Jesus is pulling back the curtain to allow the disciples to like peer into the crystal ball of their future. A future for them and a future for all of his disciples in all times and in all places. So let's get into it. The world hates you because it hates me. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus is going to have a lot to say about the world. And if you've been with us over the past many months through John, you'll remember that the world is the place of opposition to God. It is a kingdom which stands in opposition. It stands in darkness and blindness and active opposition against the God who created it and who loves it. The world wants to do whatever it can to convince itself that God either is not there, he hasn't revealed himself as he actually has, he has spoken. The world wants to convince itself that God is, maybe he is there, but he's not good, or that maybe he's there, but he's just not worth paying attention to, certainly not worshiping. But Jesus is not from the world. He's come from heaven, the kingdom of light, the place of seeing God, the place of knowing God, not of evil and selfishness, but the place of goodness and of delight. So Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The system of selfishness, the system of actively trying to replace God with like a million other little gods, Most of all, ourselves. The worshiping of ourselves is like the demigod of the universe. This world has hated Jesus. And Jesus is saying, guys, if and when the world doesn't like you, much more than just not liking you, if and when the world hates you, don't freak out. Just observe how the world has received me as you've been following me these past few years. We've had 15 chapters thus far of observing how the world has received Jesus. We've seen unbelief, anger, actively trying to stone and kill Jesus on a number of occasions. And Jesus seems to be like, like, fellas, if you could just see how the world is going to receive and treat me in like less than 24 hours, you wouldn't even believe it. So take heart. Take heart. Before the world has hated you, it has hated me. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's some sense in which human beings just like things to be homogenous. We as a people, as humanity, don't like change. 
This is one reason why I think the refugee crisis and the immigration problem of the world can become such a hot-button issue for so many. We like the way things have always been, don't we? Or as we have imagined that they've always been. So this isn't just an American thing, but across the globe, many humans would say, you know, we, we just like our culture. We like our language. We like our music. And we'd rather others not come in and just change things up from the way things are ours. It's disorienting. I don't know what normal is anymore. This isn't the America that I grew up in, some might say, or the Greece that I grew up in, or the London, or the Paris that I grew up in. Things are changing. Now, immigration is an incredibly nuanced and difficult thing, so I don't want to minimize it and like argue for open borders or something, but my point is, is that people typically do not like change. They like things to stay the way they've always been. And the message of the gospel certainly does and ought to bring enormous change. In Acts 17, we read about a Greek city that is like totally on the brink of riot, on full-scale, all-out chaos. They're bringing the Christians out and they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These folks, the, the world that they had lived in, in Thessalonica, their world had been turned upside down. The message of Christ can be disorienting because it's a message of change, of change from an ultimate allegiance. Allegiance to yourself or to a city-state or to a country or to a political system and a change to allegiance to an unseen God, a change of accountability before this God and submission to his word for your life, a change from pride to humility, a change from power to weakness. This is disorienting and can feel like the world has now turned upside down when this message is being preached because it is. The world is changing from power to weakness, from pride to humility. But the world won't just respond in anger merely because it's afraid of change. It will respond in anger because the lights just got flipped on. The same kind of disorienting and almost painful reality it is to like walk out of a movie theater in the middle of the day, right? You go to like a 2.30 show and you come out at 4.15 and it's blinding. It's almost painful the way the light hits your darkened eyes. And the light of Christ, the holiness and purity of God is an exposing light to a world full of movie theater darkness, we're thinking that we're just hidden in the dark, that we can act however we'd like, that this world that we inhabit is our like own little personal Lord of the Flies island where anything goes and I am the highest uh, ultimate accountability for what is right and wrong. And then the lights, when Jesus comes and preaches of the gospel, they just get flipped on to realize, no, I'm not the highest and uh, ultimate place of accountability of what is right and wrong. And this is exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Like seriously, who among us 
would like to have, if we had a video screen up here, a video, a 24-hour video of the last year of your life. Shoot like the last 24 hours of your life. This would be an exposing, perhaps even shameful thing for us to have that kind of visible exposure on our lives. I certainly wouldn't want that. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus also told Nicodemus in chapter 3, for God so loved the world, this world of darkness, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Not just to like come and flip on the lights and say, ha, I got you. You're all wicked and horrible. And aren't you feeling terrible now? No. To flip on the lights in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent the light of Christ not because of his hatred of the world, but because of his great love for it. The light of Christ, the confrontation that he brings, that you have lived a life of selfishness and of self-worship, of wishing and hoping that God was not real. You have lived a life pretending that God has not spoken, that he is good, or that he is worth paying attention to or worshiping. How's that going? How's that life actually going? Is it keeping its promises? Is it keeping its promises of joy and contentment? How are you doing at being the demigod of your own little universe? Our tendency when this kind of exposure comes and flips the lights on is to shrink away and run back into the movie theater. But God flips the lights on in the gospel that we might come to the light. The light of Christ has come to turn things upside down and confront you with the reality of yourself, but also with the reality that Jesus has lived a life of perfect obedience, of light where we couldn't. And he lived this life life of light as our substitute and he took the shame and condemnation like all of the video screen stuff of the past 24 hours and the entirety of your life that sense of shamefulness that we would all feel if that was blaring behind us Jesus now takes upon himself and he takes the right judgment of our selfishness for on himself on the cross as a substitute but a response to this reality is necessary. A change, a turning from the darkness to the light. And faith is what it means to be a Christian, not just acknowledging the reality of Jesus, but of following him, of abiding in him, which means to obey him. And this is what's happened to all of us who claim to be Christians, that he has called us out of our selfishness, out of our own darkness, and into his marvelous light. But then, this is the message that we Christians, just as Jesus has spoken to the world and he has spoken to us, that now we proclaim to the world. And if that's true, then verse 19 makes a bit more sense. If you were of the world, this place of, this kingdom of darkness, the world would love you as its own because you are still of the darkness. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then in verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He says, Remember the word that I said to you, like just a couple of hours ago. 
He's quoting himself from chapter 13, when a couple of hours ago, when they were still in the upper room, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master just before he washes their feet. He's meaning, he meant up there a few chapters ago and a few hours ago, if I am the master and I am giving you this example of humility, then you, my servants, ought to do the same thing as the master. Well, now he's saying the same thing, but to mean something a little bit different. He's saying if they hate the master, then they'll hate his servants also. The people who are walking in his footsteps, the people who are trying to look like him, if they hate him, then they'll hate the people that, they're trying, that are trying to look like him. Like if you really hate LeBron James, Crystal Valdez. Yes, she, she nodded before I even said her name. It likely means you're going to end up hating whatever team he ends up playing for next year. Like Crystal has probably never given a moment's thought about the Pistons or the Clippers or something. But if LeBron ends up as a Detroit Piston, she's now going to have this huge animosity for everyone who plays for the Pistons because they have identified themselves with LeBron James. What's really going to blow her mind is if LeBron ends up playing for Golden State. And will her love for Steph Curry counteract her hatred for LeBron James? Like her mind will explode. Anyway, if the world hates Jesus and will persecute him, hate him even unto death, we would be naive to think that it wouldn't do the same thing to his followers. Now I want to slow down here for just a second and think through two implications of all this. Of him calling us out of the world, us following him, and then the world hating us. All of this presumes that we have actually been called out of the world. Jesus is going to say, we'll get to spend some time in this in chapter 17, that his disciples were of the world, now they are not of the world. While they live in this sphere, this globe called planet Earth, they no longer belong to its kingdom. They belong to a different kingdom. They've been removed from the system of opposition and darkness, and now they live in the light. But all of this presumes that we now, if we've been called out of the darkness and now live in the light, that we live as if we were in the light. In his excellent little book, Worldliness, C.J. Mahaney writes this. He says, imagine I take a blind test in which my task is to identify the genuine follower of Jesus Christ. My choices are an unregenerate individual, someone who has not been born again, someone who has not had saving a new birth-giving faith in Christ, an unregenerate individual, and you. I'm given two reports detailing conversations, internet activity, manner of dress, music playlists, television habits, hobbies, leisure time, financial transactions, thoughts and passions and dreams. The question is, would I be able to tell you apart? Would I discern a difference between you and your unconverted neighbor, coworker, classmate, or friend? Have the lines between Christianity and worldly conduct in your life become so indistinguishable that there is really no difference at all? That's a punch in the gut. It's convicting, right? 
There ought to be for those who he has called out of the darkness and into the light. He has called us to follow him in obedience, not in worldliness. And since Clint brought this up at the end of the service last week, can I push us on something here? One way to abide in Christ, one way to think not as the world does, is in how we think about money. The money that we have is not ours. You realize that? Whether you're a Christian or not, everything that you own, from your home to your car to the nickel in your pocket, all of it is the Lord's. And if that's the case, then we Christians ought to think of ourselves as God's third-party money managers. He's given this money for us to steward well for a while, which includes sacrificially but with joyful generosity, giving to the expenses of the local church. Primarily for the ways in which, then, we as our church turn around and send about 30% of our budget right back out into the mission field and into other ministries, including two families here who are with us this evening from North Africa who can be where we can't who can do what we can't, who can have conversations on the beach during Ramadan about the Sermon on the Mount and about how Jesus can become eternal life for this person right now. Praise the Lord. But all of this can only happen because we, who are now not of the world, give of our money, of our prayer. If I weren't a Christian, if I was still of the world and only cared about selfishly what the world could do to make me happy, like the kind of vacations that we would go on as a family would be much cooler. If generous giving to our church and to other ministries weren't automatically built into our budget, we would be able to much more easily buy considerably bigger houses and nicer cars, way nicer dates with my wife more often. Now, don't hear me wrong. Buying nicer things can be a way to steward God's money. It very much may make sense to buy a newer car that isn't going to keep breaking, that you have to keep sinking money into. Sometimes it's good to spoil my wife on a fancy date to show her how much I love her. It very much may make sense for us to one day buy a bigger house with four teenaged boys that we can then be more hospitable to more of you and to others in this city, but Jesus is calling you out of the world, out of the system of darkness and blindness includes our bank accounts. The bank account doesn't get to stay untouched. Clint and I heard a pastor in D.C., Washington, D.C., Thabiti Anyabwile, he, he said that he had to ab- apologize to his congregation after years of pastoring them for not talking about money enough. He felt it was awkward and uncomfortable and it is kind of weird to talk about with a church and his congregation. But he apologized because he realized that it is such an important part of a Christian's discipleship, especially as Americans, where there is so much money. So I'm not just bringing this up because we're thinking about next year's budget, but because money is something that we want to, as a church, begin to think about more and not less. We don't hold up our wallets as we get baptized, (laughs) keeping it dry. 
All of it, all of our lives, everything that we own, possess, our hopes, our dreams, our passions, go to die with Christ and then get brought back to him, to life with him in the resurrection. So part of counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus might actually mean counting costs. And from time to time, evaluating and then reevaluating if money and the things that it can buy have a greater pull back towards the world from which Jesus has called us. But a second implication of all this is that Jesus says the world will hate you because of me. He didn't say the world will hate you because you're just a jerk. Like, do you speak with kindness, with gentleness, with saltiness? Words that preserve and give flavor to the world around you? Like on social media, are you known for your forbearance? I don't think we know what that word means. Like, when I just said that, do you, are you known for your forbearance? I, I don't know, because I'm not really sure. Like, this is a Christian virtue, to forbear. To, like, not think that it is actually your responsibility to correct every single wrong post or comment on social media or that your friend makes at the coffee shop. Like, it's okay to just let those fly by. Like, an overcorrecting Christian is likely not going to be very winsome to Christ. So we'll talk more briefly about religious liberty and persecution in just a moment, but are you more known for your Christian character or are you more known for your Christian conflicts? The things in which you stand opposed to for the sake of Christ, you tell yourself. Does the, do you find yourself feeling like the world hates you? But if you're really honest, it's just because you're a jerk. We want the world to hate us, not because we're jerks, but because we follow the God of the universe who has called the world to life. To life. So if all of this is reality, Jesus says the world hates you because it hates me. Secondly, all of that is true because the world hates me because it hates God. It hates Jesus because it hates God. Jesus gets to the crux of the matter in verse 21. He says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The world rejects Jesus, and the world rejects his people, because they reject God. The world has always rejected God, just as Jesus will say in verse 25, quoting David, who said in Psalm 69, David said, They hated me without cause. The world was rejecting God's king. And this has been the MO of the world since Adam, of rejecting God and rejecting his word. They're rejecting God's king and David, and it would continue on in the centuries to follow, reject God and his word through God's prophets. We do not like reminders that God is there and that he is over us. The world will continue to reject those who remind the world that we are not the greatest arbiter of morality or the highest limit of accountability. Jesus says in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He's not saying that humanity only became accountable for their sin after Jesus showed up and started talking 
And then had he not come, then everything would have just been better. If that's the case, he should have just stayed in heaven, right? What he is saying is that by speaking here what he is speaking, by turning on the mag light and shining it where he is shining it, he is exposing our sin to be what it really is, an outright and flat out rejection of the God of the universe. Not just bad habits that we've formed as individuals, as cultures even, not occasional slip-ups or mistakes, but outright rejection of God. And this is why sin is such a big deal. It's not just that we lose our temper sometimes and perhaps get angry from time to time. No, it's that we've replaced God with ourselves at the center of the universe. And if someone does something against me, if they sin against me or even get in my way on the highway, I deserve to get angry. They deserve my righteous wrath because I am the demigod of the universe. It's not just that I keep dwelling in anxious fearfulness. No, it's that I'm rejecting God for who he is and who he says he is. I'm either distrustful of him that he cares or I am unconvinced that he knows what he's doing. That I could do a better job of running this universe if I were to be put in charge. It's not just that some individuals or cultures can harbor prejudiced feelings or even racist systems but that these things come as a rejection of God in his creation of all humans in his image. All sin is satanic in nature. Following the prince of this world, Satan, in a proud and rejecting attempt to overthrow God and what he has said in his word. And so this is what Jesus is shining the light in on showing us now how guilty we are so that we have no excuse. And we see rejection of God most clearly when someone rejects Jesus. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. You want to know if someone hates God? I don't care what they say. What their feelings about the God of the universe is. If they do not Follow, obey, love, and worship Jesus. They hate God. Is this you? Is this you? Are, are you loving Jesus tonight? If not, what Jesus just told you is that you hate God. So to reject him, especially now having seen and heard everything we know about God through Jesus, this is the highest form of sin that there is. It is to say, yeah, thanks for the revelation, God of the universe, but I think I'm good without it. I think I'll just hear this, read this, or think about this, and then just move along. Like some toddler walking down Central or something, saying, Dad, I'm good without you. The height of arrogance, the height of foolishness. Jesus has come to save us out of our arrogance and save us out of our foolishness and our rejection of God. So come out of the darkness and into the glorious warmth of his light. But while this entire text has plenty to say to you if you aren't a Christian, remember Jesus is speaking all of this to his disciples, letting them peer into their own future of what's to come, a time of difficulty, of their own rejection that's coming. But Jesus says, while this is coming, don't worry. 
don't worry. Because remember, verse 26, let me just remind you again of everything that we said in chapter 14 and 15. He's sending the Holy Spirit. He's sending the helper who will continue to bear witness to Jesus through his disciples. The Holy Spirit will give clear testimony of who Jesus is. And Jesus gives clear testimony who God the Father is through his disciples. This is amazing. But the time is coming when, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So here's the craziest part about persecution of Christians. The craziest part is when persecutors think that they are doing what God wants. When they are doing what is right. It happened right off the bat to the Jews in the, the book of Acts who do exactly what Jesus just described they would do. Saul, who would be the synagogue, and then filled with zeal in doing what he thought was right, protecting what he thought was the right worship of God and what God would want of him to kill Christians. And then continuing with the Romans, who persecuted the Christian so-called atheists. The Romans called Christians atheists because of their rejection of the Roman gods. They saw them as evil doers. And then all the way throughout the centuries and unto today. Today, those who are opposed to the historic Orthodox Christian understanding of marriage, of sexuality, of God's revealed norms for humanity, and therefore view Christians and anyone else who opposes the new norms of human sexuality as a bigot. These folks are likely very often, perhaps most often, very well and good-intentioned of being motivated by what they think God, if he exists, would actually want them to do. Of thinking they are offering service to God. Of doing what is motivated out of and doing what is of love. But then the reality becomes that believing in what the Bible has to say is not only mostly irrelevant. right? That's what our culture has, I think, felt about Christians the last couple of decades. That's fine if you believe that. It doesn't really matter to my life or to the world around you. But today, believing what the Bible has to say now is dangerous. So a CrossFit executive this week, in the world's eyes, ought to lose his job for tweeting something just as hateful and as dangerous as something that Roseanne Barr tweeted. Just as hateful and filled with hatred. So he's got to go. We have to silence him out of love for the world around us. And such is the deceptive nature of our flesh. Such is the deceptive nature of the power of darkness in our world. And the day may come where such kind of opposition to the world could mean jail time. The Supreme Court decision on Monday notwithstanding, I think it's possible, if not likely, that within the next decade or two, that we as a church will lose our tax-exempt status. Because we're seen to be dangerous and even evil. Now, the timeliness of the Supreme Court decision this week, I just want to say a couple of words about religious liberty in America. If losing our tax-exempt status is the worst that comes of it, then so be it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Like, our families that are here in North Africa, I only imagine, would dream of living in such a world. 
But religious liberty should absolutely be something that Christians should advocate for and speak out against when the state tries to coerce an individual's conscience. But what was your tone on Monday morning if and when you heard the Supreme Court ruling? When you saw it come across on Facebook or you had CNN on at the office and you saw the breaking news, was your tone, ha, yes, vindicated, yes, I knew those people were wrong to treat us Christians the way they are and now the court has vindicated me. Or was your tone, even your internal tone, even if you didn't speak or type something, was your internal tone perhaps instead more driven by humility, more driven by graciousness, by love. Remember, it's one thing for the world to hate Jesus because of Jesus. It's another thing altogether to give the world reason to hate him because we people are just unpleasant and are just typing and firing off the first kind of vindicated self-righteousness that comes flying through our heads. We ought to speak to provide liberty for every American, every American, no matter their religious identity, to worship as they'd like. But times are changing. And it's for the very first time for American Christians, perhaps a little disorienting. For the first time, Christianity isn't a way to advance socially. In the 50s, you likely would have no chance at winning any kind of political election if you weren't a member of a church. Today, your church membership, especially if it's being a member of the wrong kind of church, might cost you an election. But the reality is that the world will hate Christians. So perhaps instead of feeling like the world is ending when hearing of relatively minor yet still real marginalization of Christians in America, we should just feel right at home, right? We're following in the footsteps of 2,000 years of Christians who are following after Christ. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This should not at all be disorienting. We should never pray for marginalization, never pray for persecution, but I'm kind of cool with the way things are going. We shouldn't want it. We shouldn't ask for it. Our freedom allows to meet together, to pool our money, and to send more missionaries. We should want freedom in this country. But you know what? These days, and certainly I think in a decade or two, people are, Lord willing, now more likely to come to Christ because of Christ, not just as a way to advance themselves socially or culturally, of counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ and identify with him him and his word in its fullness. But you know what? I'm I'm also kind of cool with it just because this is what Jesus said was going to happen. Things aren't going wrong. He is not off of his throne if the Supreme Court decides in a different way 12 months from now. The kingdom of heaven is being known on earth and that means perhaps even not more and more in America, but perhaps more and more in the world. Perhaps this isn't the Christian America that we all thought it was, but the world is becoming more and more Christ-like and people all over the globe now are being considered our brothers and sisters in Christ even amidst persecution. I mean, like you realize how small a minority the English-speaking white people will be around the throne of heaven, right? Like a very small sliver on the pie chart of the body of Christ. 
So it's okay. It's okay. What's the point of all this? Why did Jesus spend time talking about all this? Why should we spend time thinking about all this tonight? Well, the verse that we skipped over, chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And the verse that he uses in verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour, the disciples' hour, your hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And what does the hour mean in John's gospel? It's not just some random time out there, but it is the time of Jesus' death. When that same kind of hour comes for you, I'm saying all of these things so that you might remember, so that you don't fall away. This text ought to cause us to remember, and to remember often to pray for the persecuted church in the world. The kind of marginalization that we experience is real. Perhaps it will get more and more real in the coming decades. But the kind of marginalization and persecution for our brothers and sisters around the world is very real to the point of death. We have to pray that they remember texts like this. That they might remember this text like the disciples would later remember. In Acts 5, we read, When they had called in the apostles... Those in charge of the synagogue, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And then the disciples, the disciples who are walking with Jesus right now in chapters 15 and 16, as he's telling them these things, they evidently remembered what Jesus told them in this chapter. Because then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They had just gotten beaten. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching, they did not cease preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Because here's the deal with the movie Silence. Though sometimes it appears, it appears like God is silent. It seems like he doesn't care that his beloved sheep are being marginalized, are being persecuted, are being beaten, are being killed as they scream aloud in pain. God is not silent. He has spoken. He has spoken a word of preparation for us so that we aren't completely disoriented or discouraged by a world that isn't all that happy to hear about a gospel of change, of transformation, of light. And he has spoken the word The word made flesh, his own son who would come to be rejected, who would live to die and then die to live, who would suffer with us, that he might hear the silence of God on the cross so that we might hear a word of affirmation, a word of belonging from the Father. He heard silence so we might hear from God That Jesus might suffer with us so that we might one day reign with him. God is not silent. He has not been, he is not, and he will not be. Even though some Christians in other times and other parts of the world suffer to greater degrees than others, all of God's people throughout all time, throughout all cultures, can anchor our hearts in what Jesus has said here and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So do not lose heart. This is my Father's world. Oh, ne'er let me forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, he is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Praise God. Let's thank him for that reality. God, we are thankful that you are the God of this universe, that you have created this world, that you love this world, that you have not come to condemn this world, but that you have come to save this world. Father, we are so thankful we who have our hope and faith so anchored in Christ, so fixed on him, that we have a hope that is not of this world, even though it is not seen, that it is real. That Jesus, you have lived for us and died for us, that you have been raised to new life for us, that you have appeared to many witnesses, that you have ascended into heaven, that you are reigning over the cosmos now by the word of your power. You have spoken and you are speaking now. So Father, we pray that we might be reassured. We pray for those. Even today, the kind of marginalization, the kind of opposition and persecution that we Americans can experience in 2018 is light compared to the Christians who have come before us, Christians who are suffering even now. But Father, we pray for those of us who are feeling marginalized, who are feeling opposed by the world, who are tempted to leave or tempted to say, this doesn't feel right tempted to feel like we might lose our faith in you. Father, we pray that you might remind us, that we might remember this reality more regularly, more often, that we might be reminded of this reality so that we might remember to pray that the world first hates your people, it's the church, because it has first hated you, and the world first hates you because it hates God. Father, might this reality not make us proud, not, might not make us um, so uh, glad and thankful that we're not of the world, but might flood us with compassion, might flood us with empathy and love for a dying world around us that they might not be condemned, but they might know you through Christ. Use us, your church, not to give the world more reason to hate you, but by speaking the truth in love, others might see you and believe. For your glory, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.